0: Who are the Mountain Meisters?
1: Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus.
0: Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank.
1: Hello Meister fans and welcome. This is Ben speaking. Hey, Russell's here too. Did you ever wonder what it takes to run an Ironman? Today on the show we have Kate Snow, a professional triathlete who has run 15 of them, with 6 being world championships. Kate was the 2004 Collegiate National Champion and placed 6th in the 2013 Ironman World Championship. Kate, tell our listeners what an Ironman consists of and what could possibly possess you to do this 15
0: times. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, hello. Um, An Ironman, it starts with a 2.4-mile swim. Uh, Then there's a 112-mile bike and a marathon at the end, so 26.2 miles uh, of running at the end. Um, I'm not really sure what initially possessed me to do it. I, I saw some video footage of the... Ironman, the Hawaii Ironman Championship when I was young, and I I don't know why, but I told my mom I wanted to do that someday, and so she got me into a youth event, a local youth sprint triathlon, and I just loved it right off the bat, and so I've been in triathlon since uh, I was 13 and just kind of progressed from there.
2: Well, yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, Before we dig more into triathlons and Ironman and all these other things you've done, could you just uh, tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself?
0: In terms of my day-to-day life, it's mostly training and recovering, spending a lot of time making sure that I'm, uh, you know, letting my legs rest. I try to sit on the couch as much as possible and do my work from my laptop. And then hanging out, my husband also works from home. He's a Full time coach, and he also does triathlon. He does a lot more of the Xterra stuff right now. He just loves mountain biking, but he's going to be doing uh, Ironman Nice with me, and that will be—he's uh, done over thirty Ironman, so wow. he's got a yeah, he's got a lot of experience with that. Uh,
1: so you guys have to be probably the most fit couple <laughs> out
0: there. Yeah, there are a couple other couples there in Ironman, uh, the Lovatos for one, but yeah, it's it's a pretty fit household in general. Mm-hmm. My sister's a yoga instructor and one of the guys that lives with us is also a professional triathlete and the other guy could be a professional triathlete if he had the time to commit to it he's uh does a lot of mountain biking and cycling in general but yeah
2: yeah it seems to be your life and do you think that it would be possible to not have a husband that did the same mm-hmm. thing
0: well there are some couples out there you know there're definitely some other professional women that are married to guys that don't do this at all or professionally and they they make it work but i think for us it it was part of our relationship from the start anyways, we met through triathlon. And I think that really helps it work because we understand what the other needs in terms of time for training, nutrition. Um, You know, it would be really hard for me, I think, if my husband ate a lot of junk food and had, (laughs) you know, cookies and things like that around the house because I do have a sweet tooth. And so being able to kind of really keep the nutrition in the house very clean helps me a great deal. Um, Being able to go to bed very early spending a lot of time training uh, even on the holidays and making most of our trips center around either a race or training or at least make accommodations for training whenever we do go on a trip. That that helps me be able to be as successful as I am. And so um, I think having him involved in the sport at the level that he is makes that work much easier than it would otherwise.
1: Yeah. I'm just picturing, I mean, my parents go for a walk every night and my mom says, hey, you want to go for a walk, walk the dog for a mile? And you must ask your husband, hey, do you want to go for a marathon really quickly? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: You want to go for a a couple hours, go run for a couple hours, that kind of thing? Yeah. um, That is nice. It is nice to be able to do those kinds of things together. But it's also, it's nice that when I have a long ride, even if he's not going to come on it, he understands I'm going to be gone for several hours. He helps me to do some of the work around the house. And I try to, uh, you know, we each try to do our thing, what we can do our part to keep the house intact, even though we're in a heavy training cycle where we're maybe training, you know, 30, 35 hours a week and still coaching Mm -hmm. on top of that, you know, trying to balance it all. But it, it helps like I said, it just really helps having him understand it yeah. and understand the sacrifices that we both need to make for it to work. So.
1: Let's, get, let's get into the details of an Ironman and a triathlon because I think there's a lot that Russell and I can learn from this. First of all, for anybody who's wondering, the order of the sports goes swimming, biking, and then running. And I've heard it's from the most dangerous to the least dangerous. Is that correct? Because you don't, <laughs> don't want to drown at the end when you're swimming.
0: I think that would be one of the biggest reasons um I I'm not I've never had that confirmed for me um but I would say probably yeah the swim would be safest to have at the beginning where the fatigue levels at its lowest and I think it also has to do with everybody would be starting in the water at the same time. So having lifeguards that are able to man the mass of people is going to be a lot more feasible than if everybody's coming into the water over a span of, you know, three, four five hours after having finished the bike and the run. That might be a lot more difficult to keep the lifeguards, hmm. you know, available. yeah. Sort of. yeah. Um, But, yeah, I think the biggest thing would be keeping the fatigue level at its lowest with the water. And then, yeah, the bike also has its risks uh, in terms of the speed and crashes and things like that. And, you know, it's better to have your wits about you a bit more there. And then if there's fatigue on the run, it's a lot less dangerous if you fall down from a standing position than from uh, riding your bike at 20-plus miles an hour. Uh
1: The swim just seems like it's a free-for-all at the beginning. I mean, people are getting kicked and punched and mauled in the (laughs) face I can't really imagine a more annoying situation than that. What's it like at the beginning?
0: Chaos. Um, In the pro field, if it's not the world championship, it's not usually as bad because the field is a little bit smaller, Um, and so we spread out a little bit quicker. At the championship, it's a lot denser. We have 35 women, I believe it's 35 women and 50 men racing. So the men go off a few minutes before the women. So there's a pack of 50 men, and that's pretty dense, and it does spread out too much. There's still usually big groups of swimmers. So we'll still feel the effect of people being on top of you and getting hit and you know, possibly getting punched. I don't think there's as much intentional like, like to make it out to be, but um, I'm sure that that goes on here and there. Uh, but in the age group race where there are over 2,000 at a time, in a wave at some of the Ironman races, I've heard it referred to as uh, a washing machine. You know, it's just, Mm -hmm. you're just pushed around and there's uh, somewhat of a current, but you're also, people are swimming over you, people swim under you, you're being held up by the people in front of you, you're getting hit hands, feet, that kind of thing. So it is, it's chaotic. Usually it gets a little bit calmer about halfway through, you can kind of settle in. If you're a nervous swimmer, they they do always have the option to start further back, let everybody kind of get started and... You know, you start towards the back and it won't be as crazy or start over to the side, that kind of thing. And they've also implemented some safety standard sort of things where they'll have uh, some of the races now have wave starts where it used to be all 2000 age groupers would start at once and they would just go. And you could just see this huge wave of people, you know, going towards the first (laughs) buoy. If you can Google any of the videos of that, it's pretty crazy. Last year, they started doing it in smaller segments to help kind of spread people out. And I think that also gives the lifeguards that are out there on the surfboards a better opportunity to be able to keep an eye on people. If someone's in trouble, they can get to a surfboard easier and be able to hold on to that board and catch their breath or whatever it is. Because even strong swimmers, you know, whatever it is, maybe you swallow water and it goes in the wrong way and you start to choke a little bit and you get that panic effect. So... You know, whether you're a strong swimmer or a weak swimmer, nervous swimmer, whatever it is, you want to be able to get to safety easily, and sometimes that can be an issue if you're in the middle of the group of swimmers. So they've started to to try to address that.
2: How much time are you actually swimming?
0: Uh, in training or in a race?
2: In a race.
0: For me, it's usually around 55 minutes.
2: Wow. Yeah.
0: You know, I enjoy it. It's, the only thing that I don't love about it is that it's hard to tell where you are. If there's a group ahead of you it's hard to tell how far ahead they are of you. Um, It it could only be, you know, 20 meters, but it looks like it's 100 meters or it's, you know, an impossible distance just because the ability to see that far at the water level is tough, where if you're running, you have landmarks. There are things you can see and say, okay, I know they're only, you know, a telephone pole ahead or I know they're, you know, up at the next aid station. So I, I have a much better sense of where they are. They're are landmarks, but in the swim, you really don't have any landmarks aside from the buoys themselves. So, um, but otherwise I enjoy that part of the swim. Hmm. I think the average swim time for Ironman though is somewhere around, um, an hour and 10 minutes. So the majority of folks are swimming for a little over an hour.
1: Oh, so you're a faster swimmer. And I did the math and that swim is 169 lengths in a 25 meter pool. And you also have currents. So this sounds kind of difficult.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be tough. I actually like open water swimming a little bit better than I do pool swimming. Um, I don't have the strongest flip turn. I don't have a necessarily weak flip turn, but I uh, I do tend to do a little better going into the open water than some stronger swimmer, pool swimmers might. Um, I've been doing open water swim since I was about 11 or 12. the The swim team that I swam for as I was growing up had a, a summer event. Uh, it was a one mile swim where you'd swim across the pond and back. We'd have five from each team would go do it. And I think there were maybe 10 teams or something would go. Um, so I've been doing open water mass swims for actually longer than I've even been doing triathlon. So I'm very comfortable in the open water. You know, there are points where it gets a little bit long and you're like, all right, there's the next turn, but we let's, you know, kind of move this along. But at the same time, I do actually enjoy the, the open water swimming quite a bit.
2: Yeah, and I mean, we could talk about the swimming probably for this whole episode, but we want to talk about the swim, bike, and run. So I'm going to move on to the the actual bike section. And I had one kind of random question. Uh, I've heard that there's some controversies uh, when you get into the bike section. It's not as much of a, a washer machine, like you said, probably because people have distanced each other from them. But there is still that that drafting kind of effect that you can have riding behind people What's your take on this type of technique in the race?
0: Well, um, there's the controversy that you're probably talking about is whether or not people are doing it um, when they shouldn't be. So there are two different types of races when it comes to the cycling component. You can be doing... Uh, a non draft legal race. All Ironman events are non draft legal, so you're not supposed to be drafting at all during any Ironman event. And for the pros, I believe it's 10 bike lengths. At every meeting, we go over that, that you're not supposed to be drafting. It's supposed to be an individual event. There are the Olympic format, though, is draft legal. So you'll see. Uh, if you watch the Olympics or any of the short course world championship or world cup races, they come out of the water in big groups and they stay in a group on the bike. And the the tactic is to stay with the group and do a little bit of work. I believe, I mean, I haven't done a draft legal race in in quite a long time, but, um, from the cycling races that I've done, I would assume that you know the tactic is to do a little bit of work so that you get res- respect from the group, but also to make sure you're not the only one doing the work. That you do get the benefit of being in the group and resting here and there, so that your legs are just as fresh as everyone else's when you do come into the run. Um, and then in Ironman. Like I said, you're not allowed to draft. We do have marshals out there on the course uh, on motorcycles that are keeping an eye on that. Hopefully, you know, making sure that any packs they they do end up getting penalized, they'll have a four minute penalty. Uh, there are tents periodically around the the bike course. Usually, there'll be two two or three of them, and you'll just stop at the next tent. That uh, there'll be a person at that tent that will have been notified that you are supposed to stop there. You sign in. And you hold the stopwatch for four minutes when it reaches four minutes. you're free to go again. I believe that's the format i not what I have never had an issue with that um and I hope never to i I don't ever um put myself in that position intentionally. I can understand that some people you know if they get passed and it just happens, the timing's not right. I've heard that you know people get a penalty and they don't feel like it was justified, and they shouldn't have gotten it. Uh, I, I hope that I'm never in that position, um, and that's probably the controversy that you're you're talking about, saying that they weren't drafting and they were, and some people think that there are folks out there that chronically draft, uh, some that get away with it, and some that don't. Um, I just personally, I just try to race as fair as I can, and hope that. Um, the others are doing the same. There's really not much else that I can do when it comes to ethics.
1: Oh, very interesting. And we talked about the crowds during the swim. And I would imagine there are some crowds during the bike ride. Are, are crashes ever a concern?
0: Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, again, with the draft legal racing, that's going to be a, a much greater concern where the their impacts if someone, you know, makes a slight you know, push to one side or the other that can throw off people behind them and that can obviously cause crashes. Uh, When I was racing draft legal, I crashed out of at least two uh, international races. um, And it was something that I needed to work on was my handling skills and being comfortable on a bike and being able to respond to other riders. Uh, With the non-draft legal racing, it is much less of a concern. There are other things that could cause crashes. You know, in Kona, there are some very windy sections it can be very gusty out by javi the sorry the Conas where the Iron Man world championship is held each year and mm-hmm. um it's for some of its windier uh sections and the the wind factor uh and when those wind gusts are sudden it can definitely cause you to not necessarily lose control of the bike but um you know you have to hold a little bit Stiffer on the bike, or or be actually a little more relaxed, and but just be responsive to the wind. Those kinds of things can cause accidents. That there'll be aid stations every roughly every ten miles on the bike and that's where you get water and usually you just ride right through those and these are volunteers and they're doing the best that they can once in a while maybe um you know if someone jumps out in front of you or the rider in front of you drops a bottle something like that that could potentially cause a crash but in general at the distance that I'm racing crashing on the bike isn't usually a huge concern obviously you don't want it to happen but it doesn't usually happen very frequently
1: wow so okay okay so you've done 2.4 miles of swimming and then you finish your 112 miles of biking and now you need to run a marathon.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, see, I get relatively excited uh, as I am coming towards the end of the bike. It, you know, as long as I haven't had any mechanicals uh, or any flats, anything like that. Now I'm, I'm moving on to the part where I have a lot more control, and I can see where I am. Like I mentioned earlier, with the swim, there's that you know that concern with how far back am I? Am I you know? Am I how far ahead am I of the next group? Am I having a good swim, or does it just feel like I'm having a good swim? And then on the bike, there's always you just there's always that little voice in the back of your head concerned about getting a flat or having your chain, you know, some kind of chain issue or shifting issue or anything like that. And then once you get onto the run, it's you and your shoes. And there's really very little concern about any, obviously, any kind of mechanical issue. And, and I feel really good generally when I'm running. Uh, there are obviously issues that can arise from heat. Kona is known again for its heat and humidity, Um, you know, there can be nutrition issues related with that, fatigue issues, having come out of the swim and the bike, you know, being able to stimulate the heart rate over the next two or three hours. It's exciting, but at the same time, it's still something that, you know, it's still a feat that we have to accomplish Um, and I just try to take each mile one at a time. You know, I focus on the, how I feel at this moment, what do I need to be doing at this moment? Um, Am I hydrating enough? Am I eating appropriately? Does my stomach feel okay? Am I keeping my heart rate up? That kind of thing. Um, And the the miles start to tick away.
2: Yeah, so since this is kind of the final push and and you're really trying to get the best time that you can, is this where some injuries can occur?
0: Yeah. um, I don't know that too many people are going to get injured uh, in a race. Usually injuries in at least for Ironman, would come more through overuse in training or if you're doing 15 hours one week and then you jump up to 25 hours the next week and the fatigue of that may cause you to lose form in either you're running, your are cycling, you're swimming and that might cause a strain or a tear or something along those lines. Um, generally, in the race itself, you're not going to see someone get injured, especially on the run. They're just going to get fatigued to the point where they're not really able to stimulate that heart rate anymore and they end up to the point of walking or being pulled from the race if it's more of a health issue you know they push themselves to exhaustion and you'll see sometimes uh... someone either at an aid station or in between there'll be a volunteer with them or you know an ambulance something along those lines the medics come and try to help them if the medics come and say that you know you really shouldn't complete the race they'll probably take them back to the finish line Um, and finish in that sense. But in terms of injury, you generally don't see that uh, at at the end of an Ironman.
1: Now, have you ever heard of this thing called the pain cave? I
0: have, yeah, yeah.
1: What is exactly the pain cave? I've heard it get described a couple of times by a few different athletes. Could you describe the pain cave?
0: Yeah, uh, for me, when I experience the pain cave, it usually does come later in in Ironman. You're going into this, it's kind of a dark place. It's a place where your thoughts don't wander so much anymore early in the race they might wander a little bit you might see someone you know and say oh hey you know that kind of thing at the early part of the bike maybe you see a spectator you know and you actually recognize the spectator and maybe give them a smile that kind of thing where later into the race you go into that pain cave and there are spectators there but you don't necessarily see them anymore you're so focused on getting to that finish line and getting every last ounce out of yourself that you don't really see what's necessarily happening around you um this has happened to me in the past I've been in the final few miles of a race and people will be cheering for me including my family my mom has mentioned this and she said she'll say something along the lines of that she was cheering and and I say oh I didn't even see you and she said what do you mean you didn't see me it's more of it must have just been a reaction because I don't remember seeing her I was focused so much on just getting to that getting through that final mile of the race and it's an uncomfortable place to be, you know, mentally and physically, because you are putting every last ounce of energy into that effort. So that's where the pain part of it comes. And I think the cave of it is that you're you're not seeing much other than maybe a, a small speck of light at the end, which would be the finish line, and you just need to get there.
2: So when you're training, are you trying to find the pain cave? Find the pain cave, or is this just during races?
0: Oh, you definitely do go into that pain cave in training at times, too. I wouldn't say that I go to the pain cave on a daily basis. Um, that would be a bit extreme for me to be able to sustain my training throughout the season. But there are certainly specific routes where you do go into that. And I think that helps on race day. Having been there periodically throughout the season and training helps on race day to be able to tap into that. Um, Mindset and be able to say to myself, you know, you've been here before. You know that you can do this. You know that you can actually do worse. You've done worse in training. Uh, I find Ironman to be less grueling than some of my training days have been.
1: Yeah, I think the pain cave is one place that I'll never find. (laughs) But, you know, when I envision myself doing this, I picture myself just starting to throw up and vomit everywhere because that's kind of what I do during races when I start to approach the finish line. For some reason, I just start throwing up. Do you ever puke during the race?
0: don't think that I have ever thrown up in a race. I, I don't think that I have. Um, I've definitely had some stomach issues, but luckily the coach that I've been working with since I started Ironman has helped me come up with a great fueling plan so that on race day I'm able to fuel well without getting very many digestive issues. Again, that, that doesn't mean that I've never had them. I remember in 2009, I had some stomach issues that I had a tough time resolving during the Ironman itself, but I never, I've never gotten to a point where I've actually thrown up. I felt exhaustion, but I don't think I've ever um, had stomach issues to that point. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think that's just a personal thing for Ben because I've never actually thrown up from running, maybe from other things, but that's a different <laughs> story. So I know triathloning was debuted in the Summer Olympics back in 2000. Do you see this sport as just continuing to grow into the future?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's Triathlon's actually quite big in Europe and Australia already. I think having it in the Olympics actually helps in the U.S. a great deal. So I think we're seeing a large growth in terms of the youth development here in the U.S., especially since it's become part of the Olympics. I think a lot of young folks look to the Olympics for things that they want to achieve and seeing triathlon there, it gives them, you know, the the thought that, oh, you know, I like to swim and I like to run. You know, maybe I could try triathlon and there are a lot more youth programs out there that are allowing kids to give it a try and, and just see if they enjoy it enough to pursue it to the Olympic level. So I think I think that the Olympics definitely help in that respect. And having the Ironman World Championship, Kona there on TV each year. I think that helps a great deal get our sport out there. It has been growing, I think, over the past year or so, a couple years. It's actually plateaued a little bit which is interesting to me because I feel like I see it a lot more. I see a lot more bumper stickers for the Ironman distance or triathlon in general, swim, bike, run stickers. But from talking to some folks in the industry in terms of the sales, they've seen it plateau a little bit over the past several years, and I'm not sure what has caused that. But I I would hope that it continues to grow. I love seeing people out there of all different shapes, um, all different ages, just being inspired to do something healthy, to live a healthy lifestyle. I think triathlon, it's hard to just go out and do it once and then go back to a more sedentary lifestyle uh, where, you know, maybe someone that does a 5K on the 4th of July and that's the only race they do all year and the rest of the year they don't really exercise. I think with triathlon, it's a lot more difficult to do that, to go out and do a triathlon and then go sit on the couch for a year. And So it's nice to see people developing a healthier lifestyle and that's what i feel like triathlon helps do
1: yeah 100% agreed on that we've got to get the fitness world up and running again so now you're doing some coaching for a company called qt2 which is basically a big coaching organization for triathletes are these normally up-and-coming professionals that you're coaching or just people who want to run one
0: varies we have people from all over the spectrum Do have quite a large pro group now, a professional group that works mainly with the coach that I work with, Jesse. He's the founder of QT two. He coaches most of our pros. My husband, Tim, also coaches a few professionals and I believe we have two other coaches that are working with some of the professional athletes at this point. But otherwise we have I believe it's fourteen or fifteen coaches on board, including myself. And we work with athletes that are coming in that have never done a triathlon. They've done some road races and they've heard about triathlon and they want to do triathlon but they're too nervous to start on their own so they'd like some guidance and then we have people that have been in it for you know over a decade and they just want to fine-tune some things and this is where they're going to get the extra guidance in terms of nutrition or you know whether it's day-to-day nutrition or race fueling or uh, their strength training needs a little tweaking or whatever it is they come to us just to get a, a little bit more of an outsider's view in terms of trying to train themselves versus having a coach. And uh, Personally, I like to have a coach. I know some people work really well without a coach. My husband does not have a coach of his own. He does his own thing. But personally, I like to have someone that's going to look over my program, help me put it together, and have a second set of eyes on it because I know I can get unreasonable when I get a little tunnel vision uh, throughout the season.
2: Yeah, it seems like a pretty interesting sport to actually coach someone with. It's not like you're playing tennis with someone where you just smack the ball back at them and you you say, oh, change your grip or this or that. You actually are like, okay, go run. Do you have to go with them? Are you swimming, biking, running with these people to help them?
0: In general, it's not so much in person. A lot of our training is done either through email or, and we have an online training log where we'll we'll put up their workouts every four weeks so they can see a month, what their training is going to look like. And it's a lot more communication through email. We get emails when they finish a workout, they'll submit their results. And that goes into a training log that we can look at, you know, down the road. We can compare how their running has improved or their cycling or swimming. But we also get an email each day with their results. So we're able to see how they're doing on a day-to-day basis. If they're having trouble getting their heart rate up, we might look at fatigue or if there's something bothering them in their calf, they're feeling a little bit of a twinge, we can say, "All right, it sounds like, you know, we might be hovering on something here. Let's start doing uh, a certain strength exercise or make sure we get in to see the massage therapist this week." Those kinds of things. So it's a lot more macro coaching than it is micro coaching where with like you said with tennis it might be you're in person with that athlete and you're making minor adjustments to their swing or whatever it is. When it comes to triathlon coaching, it's a lot more, this is the volume that you should be doing and uh, this is the intensity that you want to be focusing on.
2: Having this macro approach, is it difficult to teach someone mental fitness, uh, getting their head straight?
0: Um, it, it can be tricky, but it's its a very big part of it. And, and being able to address that throughout the season, you know, sometimes early in the season, it can be tough to stay motivated, especially if the weather is kind of crappy and you need to go out for a long run, that kind of thing. Or when the volume gets heavy, you're getting closer to race day. Maybe you're only six weeks out from race day, but at this point, you've got some fatigue built up, and you've got your two biggest training weeks coming up. It's definitely something that we work on, and we've got a whole bunch of tools in our coaches. We call it our uh, coach resource area. It's kind of like a toolbox for us to try to help each athlete out and make sure that they're, you know, getting to the start line fit and uh, excited as well—not just fit and, uh, and tired, but fit and excited. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, Kate, so I'm pretty sure it's safe to say with that that you're an expert. And Russell and I have just one more question for you before we let you go. And, you know, some of our listeners may not be professional triathletes, but they might be a passionate runner, or swimmer, or biker. So I'd like you to try to narrow it down to one sport and give our listeners a gear recommendation.
0: Um. So one specific piece of gear. Uh, it, it's tough to choose just one. I guess the easiest thing for most athletes would be to choose the appropriate running shoes. I use Asics. The great thing about Asics is that they are such a big brand. They have options really for any foot type and any type of gait as well uh, in terms of your running form. So some people might pronate or supinate just different things that they do with their feet while they're running. And that can affect what type of shoe you should be running in. Maybe you're a heel striker or you fall on the ball of your foot, that kind of thing. So... There's a different type of shoe for each athlete and I think Asics is great in that they have options for every type of runner, whether it's a beginner or uh, someone that's been in it forever, whether you pronate, supinate, fall on the ball of your foot or the heel of your foot, that's what's great about them.
2: Thank you so much for the recommendation, Kate, and also for coming on the show. We'll have all your other resources on your Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Kate. It was great having you.
0: Thank you both. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Russell, and uh, everyone out there that's listening. It's great to talk with you guys.
2: So I don't know about you, Ben, but I'm pretty inspired to do a marathon or maybe a triathlon. If there are any listeners out there and they're inspired to do one and they do one, let us know. We'll feature on our website.
1: Nice. Yeah, I like it. Thanks for making that executive decision, Russell. <laughs> But anyway, we have something big going on this week, and that is a gear giveaway,
2: which also happened last week and will happen next week. But this is your chance to win some sweet gear. The gear's running out, so if you want some of this gear, go to our website, mtnmeister.com, and you can check out what's available and also share one of our episodes to be entered to win. Who do we have tomorrow, Russell? Tomorrow on the show we have Sylvan Ellison. After winning the U.S. National Nordic Championship, he was not selected for the Olympics. Yeah, find out more about his sport, the selection process, and also
1: a more entrepreneurial path that he is pursuing these days.